Hi, my name is Kanya, and I'm in the training life group. I'll be reading from Esther chapter 4, 1 to 7. Esther chapter 4, 1 to 7. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in, and in every province, wherever the king commanded and his decrees reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuch came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach one of the king's eunuch, who had been appointed to, to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai and in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out a golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think you... Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from, the, from another place. But you and your father's house, father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I, am, I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God. All right, well, it really is uh, good to be preaching to you this morning. Um, if you didn't hear earlier, my name is Gareth Maggs. I am one of the pastors here at the church. I oversee the teens ministry, and uh, it's wonderful to be teaching Esther, uh, just so that you know, you, you heard uh, just that was a section from chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. But really what I'm going to try to do in the short time that I have is do a whole overview of the book of Esther. And I'm going to try and make it relevant to you, I'm going to try and apply it, and I'm going to try and make it interesting, so you can imagine I need a lot of help from the Holy Spirit to do this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. 
Father God, I just thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. I, I do thank you for the book of Esther. I thank you that it's a wonderful book. Uh, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be upon myself, will be upon uh, those who are listening. Uh, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that as your Spirit works, it will help me to teach your truth clearly, uh, that it will be relevant to people. And Father, I also pray that those who are listening, that their lives will be changed. And that they will grow in you. I pray this in your name. Amen. So if you've just joined us uh, for the first time, or perhaps you've been away for a while, uh, we, we've been doing a series where we've been looking at uh, women in the Bible, uh, owing to the fact that it's Women's Month. So uh, last week, uh, Eddie Lombard looked at, he was in Judges, and he looked at Deborah. Uh, this week, I'm going to be in the book of Esther. And next week, uh, Pastor Rafa is going to be preaching on Mary in the New Testament, looking at the mother of Jesus. And he's also going to be looking the following week, he's going to be looking at the concept of the bride in the New Testament. So it would be great if you join us for those. But right now, I'm going to be in the book of Esther. And in preparing for my sermon, I was just blown away by the whole book. So I, I, I could have chosen to focus on Esther herself, which would have been a wonderful thing, but I decided to focus on the whole book because one thing that is great about the book of Esther is although it really shows Esther, be, Esther to be this really powerful woman of God, it actually tells us more about the greatness of God himself. And the reason why I'm fi- finding this so phenomenal is actually when you read the book of Esther, you find that in nowhere in the book is the name of God mentioned at all. If you have to go to the Hebrew text, you will see that his name isn't there, which is incredible because the author has managed to make a book all about God without actually mentioning God's name, which is incredible. And and now some of you here, you might be really gifted at something, incredibly gifted at falling asleep when someone's preaching. Okay, I know who some of you are, so that's okay. You can totally do that. Just before you fall asleep, let me give you what the main idea of Esther is, okay? And and it's this. It's the book of Esther is all about how God deals with evil. That's it, okay? Good night. We'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs> But it's helpful to be preaching a sermon on this at, the, at this time because a lot of us, here's what we've been doing. We've been reading a lot of negative articles about, about our country, right? There's a lot of negative things that are going on. We're seeing a lot of evil in the world. I did this this week, which is a bad idea, okay? Some of you have done this. You know, what, you know how this feels. You start reading one article that's negative on your phone. And, and next thing, you, you read two or three articles, and for some reason, your phone thinks that you love these articles, and so it bombards you with it, and you end up feeling like the whole world's going to end. Okay? Well, I was reading negative articles about our country, and I got to a point where you start to do this thing where you think, is the grid going to collapse? You start to go, is the economy ever going to rise up again from where it's at? You start to think, am I going to be able to put food on the table? In other words, you get to the situation where you think there's no way out of the evil that we're facing. And you might be experiencing that in some other shape or form. It could be personal things that you're going through. It could be work-related things where you are feeling there's no way out. Well, this story is pretty great for you because... At the start, although it's a story that shows how God deals with evil, at the start, we see God's people, the Jews, needing 
to be saved from an evil of which there is no way out of. And so hopefully as we go through Esther, you will feel just as encouraged as I was by this book. So I'm going to start with the catch-22 that the Jews were in. Now, I'm not going to have a lot of time to go into depth on each passage. I really recommend that you read the book of Esther yourself. Perhaps if you're still going on holiday or something, make this your holiday read. So the story starts off with this man. He's a king. He's the king of Persia, and his name is Xerxes. So some of your your Bibles will uh, translate his name as Azarus. It's the same thing. And the author shows us something about this king. And that is that he's so great that he's potentially greater than the God of the Jews. Okay? So we find out in verse 1 that this king of Persia rules over 127 provinces, which was pretty much two-thirds of the known world back then. So to put ourselves in their shoes, imagine somebody who ruled two-thirds of this world. They would have to be very, very powerful people. And to show how powerful this, this king is, the author records that, that this king hosted a party for 180 days. That's almost half a year. And during this party, he, uh, he, the reason for this party is seen in verse 4. It's to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Do you think you could host a party for 180 days in which you showed the splendor and pomp of your greatness? If you came to my house, I can guarantee you it would take you five minutes to see what makes me great, and that's just my kids and my wife. I could never, a 180 day party, this guy had enough stuff in his house to show people how great he was for 180 days, half a year. And then if that doesn't settle it, he still has another party after that for seven days. And in this seven-day party, what the author does is it, it now shows you, he, he lets you into what the king shows the people in his palace. And he does it for a good reason. He wants us to see that what the king has in his palace is the same things that the Jews would have found in the temple of God. But the king has more greater things. And you see that from verse 6 to 7. And the idea behind this is he wants people to see that this king is potentially greater than God. Because in God's house, there are some things, but this guy has the same and greater things. Like one of the things that I find hilarious is that he has gold couches in his house. I mean, how uncomfortable is that? The only reason you have gold couches is to show people how great you are. I mean, imagine if you went to a soccer match at a friend's house. It was a 90-minute game, and they said, why don't you sit on the gold couch for the whole game? You'd be like, that is, I mean, it's great, but it's uncomfortable. So this king is really great. He's really powerful. But what does he do with his power? Well, he's abusive with it. Like all great people who actually have this kind of power, often it leads to just being abusive. And he, because here's what happens. So he, during the seven day party, he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, and he asks her to dance for the men at the party. She says no. And this one no leads to him not only kicking her out as queen, but he oppresses women everywhere. Because what he does is he signs a decree which cannot be changed by him even. 
he signs a decree that says that all women must respect their husbands. Okay? All women. Now, it's a silly law, because how do you police that, first of all? But the other thing is, he does it when he's drunk. I mean, it just shows how much power he has. He can just do something when he's drunk, and no one says no, and they end up having this decree, which goes out to everybody. He's a childish king that is basically just power drunk. And then after that, what happens is, so now he's lost his queen, so now they begin this year-long beauty pageant, okay? What happens is the king sends out all a couple of men across all the 127 provinces to find the most beautiful woman, and then he brings them back to the, to the city of Susa, and all of those women are put into a beauty process that lasts a year long so that they can each individually spend one night with the king. And if the king likes what he sees in that one night, then they win the prize. They become the queen. It's like The Bachelor, right? If you've seen The Bachelor, it's like some amplified version of The Bachelor because it lasts a year long, except the women aren't fighting over a really nice man. They're fighting over this power-hungry drunkard that makes decisions that oppress women. He's not very attractive. But out of these women... One woman wins the king's heart, and her name is Esther, and she happens to be a Jew. And and here's what you start seeing in the beginning of the story, is you start to see how God works with evil. At least one thing you see, and that is that he often works in the shadows, and the reason you can say that you've, you've seen God working is because the chances of Esther, winning the king's heart was like one of us winning the lottery, all right? There would have been millions of women. Think about it. He owns two-thirds of the known world. There would have been millions of women across the provinces that he could have chosen from. And chances are, many of those women came to the city after they had been sort of whittled down. They came to the city. There would have been many women who might have even been more beautiful than Esther or more charming or whatever, But for some reason, Esther is chosen, and we know that it's not luck. That's the hand of God. He's working. Quickly, what happens after that is there's two stories that seem uh, like they're side stories, but they are relevant later on. One is we see, we've we've been introduced to two main characters so far. We've seen Xerxes, and we've seen Esther. Now we meet another character, and his name is Mordecai. And he uh, is, he's actually Esther's cousin. But we're told that at some point when Esther was a lot younger, uh, she, she lost her, her parents. We're not sure how or why. But uh, he's a, uh, Mordecai is a lot older than her, and so he adopts her. Um, so he becomes a father to her, and, and she becomes part of his household. Now, Mordecai uh, is often found in the story at the gates of the palace. And he overhears an assassination attempt on the king's life. So what he does is he informs Esther, the queen, and Esther informs the king, and he end, uh, Mordecai ends up saving the king's life. Now, while he's in the good books of the king, he is not in the good books of the fourth main character we need to see. And this is a guy called Haman. Haman, in our terms today, would have been seen as the sort of vice president 
He's the second most powerful person in all of Persia. And the reason we can tell he's powerful is because the king puts out a law that says everybody must bow down to Haman. If ever Haman walks past you, you've got to bow. And if you don't, it's punishable by death. So Haman walks through the gates, past Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. And it actually happens a couple of times where Mordecai does not bow down to him. And this angers Haman, and here's where you begin to see a bit of Haman's character. He is very similar to the king in the sense that he looks at this guy Mordecai, and he not only punishes him for what he's done wrong, but he punishes people associated with him. In this case, it's all the Jews. Because if you remember, what did the king do? The king, the queen went against him, and he not only punished her, but he punished people associated with her which in that case was all women everywhere. In our case with Mordecai, it's the Jews. But Haman takes it one step further. He doesn't just put in a law that oppresses uh, the Jews. He decides to kill them. He decides to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. And so what he ends up doing is he decides, he goes to the, the Persian gods and he enacts something called pur, P-U-R, pur, which is a way, of, it's a kind of a way of gambling. We're not quite sure exactly what happened when they did pur, but it was a way of consulting the gods, and there was always a result where they would get an answer from the gods. So he enacts pur, and he gets given from the gods a day at which the Jews must be killed. And he takes this, and he goes before the king, And he argues a good reason in his mind for the Jews to be destroyed. And the king ends up signing a decree which cannot be changed, not even by the king himself, to kill all the Jews on that specific date. So now you take a step back and you realize these Jews are in a very real catch-22. They're in a situation where there is no way out. Why? Because the king, Xerxes, who is the most powerful man, happens to be, in their eyes, greater than their God. Because if you compare their two houses, God's and his, his house is greater. And he has said, you're going to die on this date. And not only is he behind it, but so is Haman, who is the second most powerful person who's behind this death. And you've got the Persian gods who are behind it. Because remember, they cast pure, and the gods said, this is the date. And if you think about it, the Jews would have definitely feared the gods of the Persians. Because the Persians had gone around and defeated country after country. Surely their gods are powerful. And there's people here today who, right now, as I'm preaching, you're struggling to listen because here's what's happening in your mind. You're going over and over and over your own catch-22 in your head. You are facing challenges, and it's keeping you up at night. Because here's the thing, you can't see an end to it. It might be work-related. It could be that there is a deal that you are a part of and you feel that the ship is sinking and you're getting pulled down with it. And there is no way that this ship is going to be resurrected. It could be that you are working in an environment where you feel perhaps that your boss is actually a Xerxes or a Haman in your life. 
where you feel that there is a power that is in your workplace and you can't get out of it. You thought to yourself, maybe I should get another job, but you're looking around and you feel like, oh, perhaps I can't get another job. You, you feel that stuck feeling. It could be that you're actually experiencing relationship issues as well. Brothers and sisters within your family that there's a problem with and you cannot see an end to it. And you're stuck. You don't know what to do. There's no way out. It could be health issues, personal issues. And you're thinking, what, what can I do? It feels like, and, and the thing is, it, it kind of feels like God isn't there. But let me tell you something, and I want you to listen to this. You need to hear this. God works in the shadows. God hasn't left his throne. You just can't see it. But throughout the Old Testament, you see a lot of how God works. He works in the shadows. Do you think the Jews knew that they were going to be walking through an an ocean? No, God started that journey a long time before with Moses as a little baby. During a time where all the boys were killed, God was working in the shadows and eventually he delivered his people. And we're going to see the same thing in the story of Esther. God is working. You need to find comfort in that. He has not left the throne, no matter how much it looks like it. So the next question is, how does God deal with evil? Well, so Mordecai finds out that the king has signed a decree to kill all the Jews, and so he tells Esther... And that's where we get the passage that was read to us in chapter 4. What you find in in chapter 4 is you find this conversation that is a back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. And it starts with Mordecai pleading with Queen Esther to go before the king. Because in his mind, he's like, maybe this is the way out. Maybe, maybe she can go to the king. I don't know what she's going to say to the king or how this conversation is going to go down, but just maybe, maybe Esther can convince the king to do something to get, to stop this annihilation of my people. Now there's two challenges that Esther needs to consider. And the first one is if she goes before the king, she risks her life. So you'll find it in verse 11 of chapter 4. She tells Mordecai, That if anyone goes before the king and they're not called or summoned by the king himself, they will be killed. Now we're not sure why this happens, but it's likely, if you remember, Mordecai had uh, found out about an assassination attempt on the king. So the king obviously needs to protect himself, and so he decides to limit human interaction with himself. So the only person that would have been allowed to come into the king's court would have been Haman. Not even the queen herself was allowed to just walk in. She had, she had to be summoned by the king. And here's the problem. Uh, she says that she hasn't been summoned for 30 days. So it's very unlikely that she's going to be called before the king. So the only thing that she can do is go to the king herself. But if she does that, she faces death. The other issue is time. So when Esther tells Mordecai that she risks her life, um, Mordecai gives this famous three-sentence speech. And I know what you're thinking. 
You're thinking you wish every preacher could give a three-sentence speech. And it's a life-changing speech, so you're just thinking, guys, come on, preachers, learn from it. You can make life-changing sermons if you just make them shorter. <laughs> but uh, so what happens is uh, he gives a speech. I'm going to read it out to us. It's from verse 13. It says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he says to her, if you don't speak now, then God will save the Jews at some point. But Esther, you will die. Why? See, God knows something. Mordecai knows something. He knows that he's seen throughout the history of the Jews, God always comes through for his people. He's not worried about whether the people will die or not because he knows God will save them. But what he also knows is that he has not bowed down to Haman. It's It's an act that is punishable by death. And he also knows how the king works. The king doesn't just punish the one person who did the crime. He punishes everybody associated with that person. So Mordecai is certain that at some point he will die and his household will die. And that just happens to contain Esther as well. So he's thinking to himself, he's going, listen, it's just a matter of time before the king finds out that I have not bowed down to Haman. And so when that happens, he will kill not only me, but he'll kill you too. And he'll kill our family. So here's the thing, Esther, you, you either go to the king and die, or you wait till you die. Can you imagine Esther's predicament? Can you imagine how stressful that is? She's got two choices of death, but she decides the more honorable death. This is why I love Esther so much. She says that famous phrase in verse 16b, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What a woman. Sometimes I read that phrase and I want to say to, I want to say to a lot of men, you need a woman up. (laughs) Now here's the, here's the, let me, let me just quickly get to the end of the story quickly. Uh, I'm going to summarize the last few verses, because really the few, last few chapters, because really what happens is she does go before the king, and she's quite wise about her dealing with the king. She, uh, she actually first go, goes to him and invites him to a meal, uh, and then after that meal, she invites him to another meal just because she feels she has to have tactic with some, someone so powerful and, and strategy, and she's very wise, and so she invites him to the second meal, and at the second meal, she eventually tells him uh, about that she's a Jew, that the Jews are going to be annihilated, and she asks for his help, and he comes through, and they end up signing a decree that counteracts the first one that he made. So remember, he couldn't change the first decree, but he could do something to counteract it. And so in that second decree, what he does is he says that if any Jews feel attacked by the Persians in any way, they are allowed to stand up and fight back. And what this does is it causes a lot of fear amongst many of the Jews, amongst many of the Persians, and so they don't end up uh, stepping up to fight. And those that do are outnumbered by the, Jew, the Jewish soldiers. And so what ends up happening is the Jews win. And at the end of the story, 
What's really interesting is you have this feast that they, that they have, and this feast they call Purim. It's a wonderful feast, and throughout that passage at the last chapter of, of Esther, you find that the word that's repeated the most is the word peace. God's people are in peace. And that event, Purim, is often celebrated even by Jews to this day. Uh, it's a celebration of what God did in the book of Esther. Now, the reason I, I, I finished the story, I want, you, I want you to see something. If you take a step back from the book of Esther, you actually get the whole salvation story for Christians. Because you think about it, what do you have? You have a group of people, and death is their only outcome. They're enslaved to death. And so what does God do? He sends a savior. A single person who is willing to give their life to save those people. And what happens is at the end, they're feasting in peace. Do you see the salvation story? Doesn't that sound familiar to many of us? Because it's the same story for us as Christians. We were enslaved to death. That's what Romans tells us. The penalty of sin is death. Our sin has caused death to be a real thing for us. What does God do? He sends a savior, Jesus, who dies on the cross. And at the end of time, we will be with him in paradise. The great banquet that's spoken about in Revelation. Now, something else that I found, find mind-blowing about the book of Esther, and this just blew my mind when I was preparing uh, for this, this sermon, was... If you look in chapter 5, verse 1, that's the day, talks about the day that Esther went before the king. And the very first words of 5, verse 1 is on the third day. So on the third day, they went to the king. Now, if you, if you look at, um, at the celebration of Purim, the month at which Purim is celebrated on actually starts on the day that Queen Esther went before the king. In other words, what the Jews think when they think of Purim is they think of the fact that on the third day, that was when their salvation actually started, was when Queen Esther went before the king. Now, I find that strange because what I would think is I would think surely you would actually start this celebration event of your salvation on the day at the end when you're actually feasting. But that's not how they think. And it's so helpful for us because actually if this is a picture of what we see of where the way God saves, we should actually have the same mindset because something happened very important for us Christians on the third day. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, our death would not have been defeated. But it happened, but the reason we know that death has been defeated is by the very fact that Jesus rose. So our salvation in, in some shape or form begins at the third day. But we've still got a whole period of time, like the Jews, where things aren't actually perfect. The Jews still had battles to face with the Persians until eventually they had that great meal. And it's the same for us. The salvation starts with Jesus, but evil is only completely defeated when we're finally with the Lord in paradise. 
And I want to say this to you because what we've seen so far, if you just quickly summarize what we've seen, we've seen that God works in evil, but he's working in the background. We've seen actually that his ultimate way of defeating evil is through someone coming and dying. And we've seen that there's a great banquet at the end. This is how God primarily deals with evil. Most of us want a God that actually, we we don't want to see the cross as important. What we rather want to see is a God who deals with evil now. We tend to think that God's primary, primary job is not to defeat evil in one big ultimate way like the cross. He needs to defeat all the separate individual evils in our lives. And if he doesn't do that, then he's not God. You know, like we pray to him when we have financial struggles, when we have health issues, all of those things. Because isn't that his primary job? His primary job is to sort out all my issues like some kind of a genie that we just pray to and he starts sorting things out the moment we ask. That's how we view him. But you need to think of it this way. Imagine you head to a village and there is a river running past that village. And that river is completely polluted. And you see that people in the village have been drinking from this water and they're getting sick with multiple illnesses, but they don't realize that the river is the problem. If you went into that village, you could do this. You could choose to cure the problem with the water or you could choose to cure everybody individually. But that would be pointless, right? Because you would just cure one person and that person would get sick again and other people would also, they'd still be getting sick. You'd never actually solve the problem. What you need to do is you need to deal with the river. And this is what Jesus does. He sees all the evil in the world and he says, I need to deal with what is the root cause. I need to deal with the river. And so what he does is he dies on the cross for us. And that is his way of dealing with the evil. And it's kind of like going to that river And you start putting in something that starts to defeat the pollution, but it doesn't deal with it straight away instantly right then. It takes its time. And for Christians, we know that though God has dealt with evil, his his solution is going to slowly work through time until eventually we are all with him in paradise. What does that look like for us? Well, the moment you start trusting in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into you and slowly starts to clean you and make you into the person God needs you to be. And while that's happening, it's also happening to every other person who has believed in Jesus. It's not that all evil gets defeated instantly. It happens over time. That's how God ultimately deals with evil. Yes, God does answer our prayers when we pray to him, but if you don't see the cross, then you'll never understand how God fully deals with evil. You might even at times be questioning, does God love you when you're going through evil? But when you look back at the cross, you see that he does. So you've seen God working in evil through the background. You've seen how he deals with evil ultimately at the cross. But we also have this great banquet that will happen at the end. Now, I want to say to you why that is such a helpful way for getting through evil. I've got, a, I've got an illustration. So, when I, when I, a few months back when I finished school, oh good, thank goodness, not many people left. They really thought I was that, oh, thank goodness. Made my day, thank you so much. So, 
when I when I finished school, I, I took a year off, and part of what I did was I traveled to the states. Uh, and I need to just preempt this. Um, I have a lot of American friends who I love. I love American people. They are often very warm, very generous people. But when I was in the states, I, I struggled. Um, I struggled with a lot of the relationships I had. I was a young man. I was homesick. I was one of the very few Christians that I knew. I was one of the very few South Africans that I knew. And so it, it, there was, it was a very difficult time for me. And uh, one of the men who was uh, there who ran the camp, thankfully he was there. He happened to be a, a Christian himself. And he kind of fathered me, took me under his wing. And uh, he even read the Bible with me, which was great. And the one day he uh, takes me to the, um, the YMCA headquarters in the middle of the town. And uh, he had a meeting, so I, uh, the, the, the secretary who he introduced me to was so amazed that she found someone from Africa, that she, uh, she, was so, she just wanted to ask me everything. And, and we sparked up this conversation, and this is a side road, but it was quite funny. She, uh, she looked at me, she said, I've always wondered something. Oh, I'm like, where's this going? Then she says, when Santa comes to Africa... Does he wear the coat? That is such a good question. I've never thought of that. In all our marketing for Father Christmas, he is always fully kitted. And it's December in Africa. So I had a good laugh with her. But anyway, uh, so she was, and again, like I said, often Americans are very kind and warm. And she... She gave me two free tickets to Disney World. She just gave them to me. I mean, I went home, I went to the campsite after this meeting, and I googled how much these things cost. And in rand terms, they were about 2,000 rand each. She gave them to me. Well, I, I was really excited. So what I started to do was I started to plan when I was going to go to Disney World. And I knew I had about a month left of camp. Straight after that, I was going to go down to Disney World. And guess what else happened? If you guys know me, you know that I love music. And it just so happened that my favorite band was playing live at Disney World in that week. I mean, if you want heaven on earth for Gareth, just <laughs> Disney World and my favorite band, and we're done. And so what happened was the, the week's... Leading up to that, that camp, man, anything that went wrong, all I would do is just say to myself, it's just a few days time until I'm in paradise. <laughs> now, the same thing happens to us as Christians, except when we compare what our paradise is going to be like, it makes Disney World and Gareth's favorite band look like mud. Okay? Because when we get to that great feast one day, when we are with Jesus, there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no suffering, and we get to be with Jesus, who the joy that he brings, one cannot actually quantify. You, like me, can say this. Because we know that in comparison to eternity, our life here is so short, we can say it's just a few days' time. Whatever challenge you are going through, you can literally say to that challenge, evil will not have the last laugh. It's just a few days' time. 
Well, my time is done. I just wanted to make one final remark as, as I close off. Um, is I didn't want to forget about the courage of Esther. Since it's Women's Month, it really is a good idea to actually look at Esther. And uh, I wondered if you, if you now know, you look at the story and you see it as a salvation story, just like Esther, we have people in our lives which we know are on the road to a certain death. Are you willing to say to yourself, for such a time as this, I will step up, and if I perish, I perish. Are you willing to look at those people, and just like Esther, who loved her people, are you looking at your family and your friends who are non-believers, and are you looking at them with such love because you know that one day they're going to die? Are you stepping up to share the gospel? Are you willing to give your life? I think most of us aren't. I think most of us are very scared of social death or relationship death. And so we'd rather not. But think of it this way. If you don't die for them now, they will die later. What's more important? Your reputation or their salvation? Now, I'm not saying you go and you run into your offices and you just start like hitting people over the head with a Bible, telling them they need to become Christians. No, what I would do is seriously think about this. You have family members. I'm sure you could go home today, sit down with a pen and paper and kind of think, what best way can I share the gospel with those people? And just strategically think about it. Pray about it. Because their life means something. With that, let me close in prayer. Father God, we just thank you that you deal with evil. We thank you that you are working in the background. We thank you that you have ultimately brought about Jesus to defeat evil. Father God, we pray that we are encouraged by the end. We pray that we may look, just like that song that we sang, we pray that we may be able to realize that Though we don't know what you're doing, we know what you've done. We're fighting the battle you've already won. I pray, Lord, that you will be with us, that you will strengthen us to step up, to woman up like Esther, and to be able to be willing to share the gospel with those who, who are lost and who are facing a certain death. I pray this in your name. Amen.